0: This is People Who Play, a show about the art of playful living. I'm Emma Warrilow, researcher, writer, and part time mermaid. And I'm Ben Martin, content creator and nostalgia junkie. Every episode, we discuss family life, playtime, and we interview a guest who has found a way to play at life. From creatives to educators to comedians, our aim is to inspire more grown ups to grow down and unleash their unique play powers if you'd like to join our play crew and find more inspiration and info on play follow at playful underscore den on instagram
1: and for all your retro feels find me on instagram at ben flying retro
0: i'm on there too at emma warrelo e-m-m-a w-o double really this podcast drops bi-weekly on mondays but if that's not enough to get your playful vibes vibing you can also join my Patreon for £5 a month and you'll get a personal pod from me which drops alternate Mondays. Plus you can now watch the video interviews of our guests directly in there too. We really do appreciate all your likes, subscribes, follows and shares. These digital high fives really mean a lot to us and help us to grow the show. Okay, let's get on with the episode. It's playtime. Hello, play people. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I have a smashing guest for you today from Down Under, I've got Marcus Veerman, who is the CEO and founder of Playground Ideas which is a not-for-profit organisation supporting communities around the world to build playgrounds with local resources. Marcus had what I would consider a pretty bucket list adventure in his early career where he Travelled around to different communities in different parts of the world, um, helping them to build playgrounds in places where playgrounds did not exist, using a lot of local resources, a lot of reusing materials and made this design accessible. You can still get it, you can download it, you can build one yourself, um, helping to spread the the magic of building truly playful playgrounds, which involve different ways of playing, including loose parts play, which is a real passion of his and of mine as well, actually. And his latest invention is called the noodle cart. This is an inclusive and stimulating Loose Parts Play Resource. It is used by schools, early childhood centers and health professionals all around the world and really is the epitome of what Loose Parts Play is. Now, if you've heard this term, Loose Parts, I've said it so many times now, it's already sounding weird. You might've heard it on social media if you follow lots of like play content and you're sort of interested in doing your own research about um, children's play, you you hear this come up um, over and over again. And we get into it in this conversation. What is it? Why does it matter? And I think and I hope this is really interesting and insightful for anyone listening who is thinking about the resources and sort of like tactile materials that your children or children in your lives might have access to in their play. Loose Parts essentially is being able to move around and sort of manipulate objects, being able to put them together in different ways, put them where you want to put them, transport them, invent things with them, all of that kind of things. And and things that are more fixed, um, sort of like, more like play sets, a lot of parks in the UK are very fixed. That's why children get bored of them really quickly. Don't enable this type of loose parts play. And that can be more restrictive for children because ultimately, when kids are playing, they want to be able to manipulate these objects that 's kind of what humans are meant to do, and what we 've always done is to move things around and, and and create new things out of existing materials so that 's what loose parts play is, and we sort of get into that in this conversation. I of course enjoyed geeking out about the innovation side of this invention, the noodle car, and hearing all about it. And I really hope that you enjoy this chat. It, it certainly goes off in a few different tangents. Um, and there's some great takeaways in here. So here is the interview. Relax, enjoy, and let's chat play. Marcus, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. You have such a fascinating uh, career journey and just personal perspective on play and education and types of play I can't wait to dive in I wondered if you could just give us a little bit of your own version of how you got into the quote-unquote play business um and how you arrived at being the founder of Noodle Cart just to kick off
1: sure yeah sure um So unlike a lot of people, I didn't sort of go, you know, a lot of people sort of start in early childhood or, you know, start just from the start with play. Um, I didn't know that I was heading in this direction um, from the start, but if you look at where I started, you can sort of, there's there's a, a strong reason of why I got here from where I started. So I actually started as an outdoor education teacher, a really passionate mountain guide who wanted to take young people into the bush and give them opportunities, which I now call kind of open ended learning or self directed learning because of the play things that I know. But at the time, you know, we were just going camping with kids. And, um, but I guess I, even though I was trained as a teacher, most teachers see children in that education context. Whereas I always, right from the start, like literally my, I was so excited about outdoor education. I, I rarely did any classroom teaching. And when I did, I really, really didn't enjoy it. So a lot of my um, you know practical work, even at university, was taking kids out of the classroom. Um, and so I did that for most of my 20s, was taking children into the outdoors. And so at a really fundamental level as, a, as an educator, what I saw was children who were self-motivated to solve their own problems and um, highly competent learners um, and people who are, you know, just just comfortable to experiment and explore and, and to do that work themselves. Um, and I don't know whether it's my Dutch background, as I've just noticed more recently that a lot of Dutch parents have a very kind of independent mindset with their children. I don't know, you know, my, my father is very Dutch. Um, but um, yeah, that that that's that's where I started, um, and then from there I was in a long-term relationship. You know, things were getting a bit more serious. We were looking a bit about getting married, and being away for forty weeks of a year is really not conducive to a to a relationship. I was literally, you know, I'd sort of leave at my dad's place and um, um, sort of go to my um, partner's my girlfriend's place feels, feels weird to say that but my girlfriend's place at the time over the weekends and then i just packed my backpack and off i'd go anyway after about seven or eight years i'd look at my backpack with just absolute hatred there's a point at which i got to where it's just like if i have to pick up if i have to pack my underpants into that backpack one more time i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna throw it out the window um and it was getting as old as i was feeling in that role so um I met an amazing guy called Russell Kerr, who again was doing self-directed learning. He was doing a kind of a, a design build program in high schools with kids where um, instead of you having a class, you'd have them for the a whole day, a week, and you would just be able to design and build things. That was the whole program. And um, and the other cool thing was that it was between year seven, so that's like the start of high school to year 10, so these are like 15 or 16-year-olds, you'd have them every week through that whole middle teen Mm. period. It was really amazing. And um, and so we built a full-size classroom made out of straw bale and earth render, cob, kind of straw bale, cob rendered thing. We did bicycle maintenance and we built um, furniture, you know, park benches in the parks and um, all sorts of stuff like that. So it was my second job that lasted for three or four years. And then my then, my now wife, my then wife, after we got married, um, one of the things that we'd sort of agreed to, um, it was very important to my wife, was that we were going to go and live and travel, travel and live overseas and do some development work um, at some stage. And so when I turned about 30, we'd been married for about a year, and Australian Volunteers International offered um, Willow, my wife's, a position on the time. Um, in Thailand, working with Burmese, or back then Burmese, but now sort of Myanmarese um, refugees, or the minority groups who live in Myanmar, who were not um, Burman, but of their own, I think minority. So I went over there, and you know I was thirty years old. i have been working for ten years, and I had—I'd I'd never been in a position where I had time to think to do something different. I just transitioned from out there to this other thing. Um, And then I was asked to build a playground, and I was like, sure. I had actually had two experiences building playgrounds previously when I was doing outdoor education, and I'd taken children to Vietnam, Cambodia, and Madagascar. I'd done these international trips with Australian kids, Um, and we built some pretty rudimentary sort of basic playground equipment. So I said, sure, great. That sounds awesome. I'll do that. So um, after I'd finished building a bamboo strip canoe for the little lake there and did a photography course and did some other stupid things. I built a, I built this playground that had this big swing set and the swings um, like swung out over this lake. And, you know, it was this really awesome cubby house made out of this leafy thatch. And it was just like this fairy tale with a big mountain in the background. Um, and then this amazing local Thai principal um, approached me and just said, we want to do this, but we've never known how to do it. You, you have to come to my village. I'm a, I'm Thai, but I teach um, these children from a um, ethnic minority called the um, um, Padang or Palang, which just means the red earth kind of red earth people. that came from up in the mountains. Anyway, I met. I went to this amazing village, and honestly, I've never seen a more sustainable, happy. It just was the most amazing, breathtaking scenery. But just the, this community was just humming. You know, they just, they had their own breed of rice that they cooked. They had these huge vegetable gardens everywhere. Um, they had these huge corn, stores of corn that took them through the whole winter. It, was just, it just blew my mind. I was just loved being there. And um, they had an amazing little school there um, with this teak plantation sort of in the school grounds that was sh- shaded the whole place. And I built this playground that was made of all these little platforms nailed into these amazing old teak trees. It was just it was a, it was one of the best travel sort of experiences of my life. Um, and then basically from there, for the last fifteen years, to sort of cut a long story short, I ended up building playgrounds. So you know, I I built I built forty playgrounds on the um, in that area and then on the Thai Myanmar border. Um, and then towards the end of that, I had a whole bunch of volunteers who were just doing it. So I started going, well, I'm going to write a manual about how to do this. And then when I came home, I sought some funding and said, I want to build a website. I want to be like the Google the Google Docs of Playgrounds. So you can just come, use this resource for free. You've got everything you need to, you know, in the Google Docs example to write your document or whatever. And in our example, you get all the manuals, designs, everything you needed. You just had to have the get up and go and the motivation to do it right and so fast forward um to today that website has now supported about um probably six to six and a half thousand communities um, and impacted around three to three and a half million children in 143 countries um and um yeah that's been a you know that was my sort of first scaled up success and the amazing thing about that that to fund that it costs us about i don't know it fluctuates each year but somewhere between 50 cents and a dollar a child to do right because the communities do the fundraising for the basic materials and we we just need to support them through that process so it's a really cheap um yeah scaled up way to work <clears throat> so from that about five years ago um we did a we won a huge government contract to support East Timor to build 300 playgrounds for their government-sponsored early childhood centres. So that was all the early childhood centres across the country, like the most amazing opportunity. We went over there to build a few prototypes. Sadly, there were lots of problems with the program, but one of them was ours, and that was that the Playground Ideas model is fantastic for grassroots-motivated people, but it doesn't scale. So if you go to the timoree's government you say i need ten thousand recycled car tires that's a really hard government mm-hmm. challenge like mm-hmm. even though they've got them so they've got buses and the army yeah. and all that stuff they've got those tires to get them and to get them in the right place when you need them and to you know like that's no one's job yeah. right it's not you know so to pull them out of the waste stream and you know you just people forget every day anyway it just didn't really work and so we really after that program, and that program really folded. Like it was a, it was a really um, unsuccessful. It was a, an amazing attempt, but it was it ended up actually being quite unsuccessful because of a lot of other reasons. We sort of left after the prototypes, but um, I don't believe they built more than three or four other programs, which makes me sad to this day that 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 we couldn't. We we struggled to do our thing, but also you know there were, there were just a lot of bureaucratic other issues. So that really was kind of like. Um, lightning bolt to me you know i took that very very seriously and i was like we need to find a solution for how we can support children in play but that doesn't but that works in a scaled way Mm. you know like playground ideas worked because it works with individual grassroots motivated people every time different people all over the world but when you're trying to do lots of things you know we, we wanted to find a solution to that so the the real insight that sort of got me going on this was what if instead of building a customized playground like designing a custom playground with every single community because that was our playground ideas model which is a, really still a fantastic model what if we could create this this sounds a bit crazy but you just give me a bit the same thing that comes off a production line and yep. all i know all the play people in the world are going to be like hating this they're just like you <laughs> cannot do this that Marcus is a loser. I'm never going to listen to him again. <laughs> I've copped abuse from people in the play world about this. But what if you create something so generic and so versatile? Every time a child comes to that object, they use it in a different way. And they customize that space afresh and new every single time. And that was the real insight that led us onto Noodle Cart. And has been really the obsession for the last five years is how to create the world's most open-ended, student-directed, non-gendered, non-cultured sort of generic implement that could be used by, uh, you know, by children. So um, you have almost
0: tried to Create from
1: their imagination.
0: So you've tried to put like a whole playground experience into something that can be sort of sent anywhere, Mm. delivered anywhere, opened up, and anyone can do it without having to build all of these big structures.
1: Yeah, a loose parts.
0: Yeah, loose parts, yeah. I'd
1: say it's not, you know, when you see a noodle cart, there's no swing, slide, or seesaws, which basically around the world is water. Playground has become poles, platforms, swing, slide, seesaw, you know, maybe something that spins, right? So um, we just kind of did away with that, uh, with the history completely. We just sort of went, you know what, let's just reinvent this thing completely from the the ground up. Um, And you know, it's not perfect. The Noodle Card is not a fixed playground. It, it's it's hard to put in a physical playground space because you, you you know you really need some sort of supervision or something, right? Um, or you you know we've we've sort of <laughs> and again, play people are going to be screaming at the at the <laughs> microphone at the speakers about this, but you know we've we've even spoken to airports about could we put some RFID chips to allow that loose because loose parts are just so amazing, right? And I'm sure we'll talk about them yeah, more in a minute what we'll but. To that, you know, I really see that as um, it's the, it really is one of the pinnacles of, of play, is sort of um, the ability to manipulate things, you know, from the very first time that a child picks up, you know, a, a ball off the floor or, a, you know, um, a chopstick off the table or whatever, you know, the ability for a child to arrange that, touch it, drop it, throw it, flick it, bend it, snap it, all, all of those things, is how you learn how the fundamentals of the world works, right? Um, And you learn social skills. You poke your brother in the eye. You learn, you know, it's physical things. Yeah. And so I guess the way if people are wondering what noodle cart might sort of look like in their mind, I mean, you can Google it, but we kind of see ourselves as, I just made this up the other day, but I think it works quite well. We're kind of the Dr. Seuss end of Lego and Meccano. Yeah. Like you can build anything in it and you, you know, it just forces you to be imaginative. It forces you to fantasize. It forces you to be creative and social. Uh, it, it doesn't even work really without other children um, nearby or parents because yeah. it's, you know, it's all about that creative interaction between, you know, what humans do really well is that creative bounce between each other. Yeah. To sort of make things work. Yeah, yeah I love that. So that's there's, why there's I want to get way
0: more it. into Loose Parts Play, but there's already so much in what you've shared that I really want to dig into. But I actually just wanted to um, mm. just take a little moment to ask a sort of personal question for you and your play style. Mm. And you obviously have a a sense of adventure, a spirit of adventure right from your sort of early experience in outdoor education through to some of your travels. I wondered if you could just share because I'm a little bit sort of obsessed at the moment with adventures and how that adventurous spirit I think is so important and isn't sort of spoken about enough and how to get more adventures into your sort of everyday life, I think so important. I wondered if I could ask if that, if you relate to that, first of all, that, that importance and the feeling of adventure and where you got that adventurous spirit from and how you've kept it going through adulthood, because I think it is something that can disappear at a certain, um, at a certain life stage for different people. So I would love to hear you. Yeah. Speak about the, the role of adventure and, and, and how you, how you connect with it.
1: The first thing is like to strip that you know, what you're calling adventure back to bare bones. So, you know, I, I come from a family of sort of um I don't know whether they'd agree with this, but, you know, quite a few people who are kind of on the spectrum Um and mixed with, I think probably a bit of that ADHD type temperament. I wouldn't say anyone was sort of super hardcore, but it's definitely there. And I think that that side of the human spectrum, which I don't, um, you know, I know that, very severe cases um are severe disabilities and need to be supported. So you know don't want to cop any flak for that, but but there is that there is a high need for stimulation in certain yeah. human beings, and I think there's a lot of people, accountants, bankers, you know, um, people who you know have those really very really, very really diligent jobs who. Probably my guess is just completely don't understand what we're even talking about when we talk about this stuff, right? So like I I need I, my body craves stimulation. So if you yeah. take the, the the more hardcore ADHD type kid, they have low dopamine levels, right? So they don't. So for them to feel the same amount of ex, of excitement as the average person. You know, like you think about those, cra- you know, crazy YouTube videos of skateboarders, you know, jumping over the top of 50 people. That's just, they're all low dopamine people, the people being jumped over and the people doing the jumping. Yeah. Like, you know, you think about people who do parachuting, all that stuff that kind of shocks your average person. That's just people seeking stimulation, right? It's just a natural, we all seek stimulation. We all like dancing and watching movies and, you know, we like to be entertained because it, it fills that sort of those hormonal levels up. But, um, you know, some people just need that more than others. So I think my desire for adventure, possibly your obsession with that, is probably because we just need we need more stimulation to get that same elated feeling, you know. So I've been bungee jumping and paragliding a few times and, um, you know, I've, done, I've tried that um, indoor skydiving. I've never actually been skydiving. Um, I've started doing a bit of... Um, uh, it's, we're just coming out of winter, so it's been a little while, but um, what I call synthetic surfing, you know, surfing in, 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 I don't know if you have them in the UK, but um, uh, these
0: um, wave machine, wave, yeah, yeah wave, yeah. Which,
1: which is just, uh, it, I mean, it's just so amazing to have that on tap. Um, anyway, so you know, I, I think that's where it comes from. It's just, it's just that desire for much more stimulation, you know, like I, when, when I'm walking along the street as a kid, I want to stand on the fence and balance on the fence, not on, not walk on the footpath. Whereas other kids just look at that and they're like, you don't have to do that. And I'm like, yeah, you don't. I don't have to do it, but it makes me feel like you when I do it. Then we feel uh, kind of we probably feel the same.
0: Yeah. I think that's so interesting thinking about yeah, the relationship between adventure and perhaps what it is that makes you feel stimulated and really being intentional about that. I also like to talk a lot about understanding particularly in adulthood, your own play style and when you feel most yourself and when you find yourself at play and then, you know, really sort of almost doubling down on those things and turning those into your adventures to get that kind of level Mm -hmm. of stimulation that you talk about. Because I think sometimes people hear the word adventure and they think, oh, that's just like climbing a mountain. Um, That's not really for me, but you can kind of be adventurous and not be the person that paraglides or whatever it might be i think just that that mm. sort of feeling of slightly pushing yourself and really kind of doubling down on what that those play interests are that stimulate you as you describe um is how you can get these adventures into your life i think they're really important because as you say lots of people can drift into a stage where they're in quite serious jobs or you know life mm. becomes very routine and constantly being able to get into that adventurous spirit I think just really sort of shakes us from that and co- connects us back to just being human I think it's really really interesting um what did you, you know, sorry, just, sorry you
1: just reminded me of something that I to help frame um adventure as a generic thing that people might understand who are not necessarily adventurous you know because I studied after education we actually studied adventure and you just totally jogged a memory that I haven't had in 20 years that there was this graph like like um which was based on the difficulty of the task on one axis and the skill level on the other axis and basically you go from if your skill level is very high and the difficulty of the task is very low then you enter that task in a very relaxed state which can also slip into boredom right yeah um and um sort of flow state if you like is where your skill is that middle section running at 45 degrees up through the graph which is where your skill and the level of difficulty match each other and then right on the edge of that is where adventure lies which is where you I can see you smiling I love this (laughs) yeah where the level of difficulty doesn't exceed your level of skill but it's right on the edge. You're, you're right on the edge. And then as soon as you tip over that, where the level of skill goes up. So, for instance, if you're rafting down a river and you go great, and your, your level of, of adventure is at a grade three rapid. Your level of flow state is, a, a, is at a grade two. As soon as you go to a grade four rapid, you go into what's called misadventure. Yeah. Where the level of skill exceeds your ability and you head into a state of panic and distress and anxiety and failure basically and it's really interesting you know we used to talk about that a lot because you're trying to create experiences for children where you're where you're treading that line Mm. with a group and though and the people in that group their their level of adventures are completely different so you're managing this kind of space for high stimulation people low stimulation people you know people who you know it's it's tricky
0: that's so interesting and i think It's that sort of perspective Mm. and I don't want to use the word training because it sounds so formal, but it's that sort of information I think parents could massively benefit from when it comes to risk taking and play. So this is something Mm. I probably get asked about most frequently in relate, relation to children's pay because I think parents understand that it is important and I think a lot of parents look back at some of the things that they did as a kid and think oh, I'd never let my kids do that but I'm glad mm. I did it and I don't know what it's like in Australia but in certainly exactly. here in, in England a it's issue it's yeah, it's quite conservative. And there's a lot more and you could probably reflect on this in some of your experiences of playground design. Actually, we literally have like rubber playgrounds and we're very yeah, it's, risk it's a global phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, it is. And that's really, I think, useful how yeah. you describe that with the, the sort of framing of adventure there. Because I think some parents think, well, my kid can't you know, climb that high or can't do that. And it's actually about everyone has a a sort of a ladder, if you like, of risk taking and pushing themselves. And it's not about trying to get your kid to do something super dangerous, because you want them to be taking a risk that another kid did it's about getting in touch with what level are you at and how do we constantly try and just push that a little bit so that they get to experience mm. that sort of mitigated risk and i think how you described that there i really related that to i think yeah that sort of risk taking in play and a struggle that parents can have with letting their kids do that
1: you know it's really you just there's so many things i could so many different angles you could take of that so you know, one of the reasons, gosh, so one of the things I'd tell you very quickly is one of the reasons that parents think to themselves, I did that as a child, but I'd never let my kid do that. One of the reasons is because because of the it's sort of a death of a thousand cuts, you know, because they haven't done all of the precursor steps to that activity. They are no longer competent or they are not yet competent to be able to undertake that task yep. at that age. And they may never get to that level of competency, right? You know, I'm watching my daughter at the moment. She's going through this super athletic phase where she's just got muscles on her muscles because she's doing that. I don't know if you remember as a kid that horizontal bar where you just – Yes. Do back flips yeah. Do backflips around. Oh my gosh, she's so like she's got, she's got these um, calluses on her hands. My daughter she's just too. So strong. Yeah. She will just walk up to me and just flex on me, just flex her muscles. <laughs> she's like, check this out, and I'm, she's ripped, you know, like massive six pack. It's so amazing to watch. But she's got this whole crew of friends who are, you know, they're egging each other on in this in this really great way where they're all they take turns and they're like, I'm gonna do this, and you know, should you know, would come back and say, oh, you know. I did six backflips in a row today, or, you know, like literally it went from, I can't do a backflip yet. And then, um, you know, I told her that I, her auntie used to be able to do it, which she just couldn't believe because her auntie is <laughs> just not that kind of person anymore. But as soon as she sort of heard that, she was like, game on. So she's, she's, um, it's, it's really amazing to watch. But, but yeah, this is a problem of competence, right? So there's that. I think the other thing that is really important for parents to note is that. Population density has completely changed since we were kids. So when we talk about complaining that kids don't play on the roads, part of that is because cars have, you know, Tim yeah. Gill talks about cars taking over the streets all the time, and that is absolutely true. Cars go faster. There's way more of them, and that has completely changed suburbs. Uh, and that's why we've got this backlash with play streets and other things. But the other thing is, as a result of faster cars and other things, we've pulled back on letting our children back on the street. Um, and therefore cars feel like they can go faster because they don't see any children. But most importantly, the biggest change that's happened is the number of, I think, maybe this isn't true and I'm happy to argue with someone about it, is the number of children per family. So if you go to a very old block that might have been in the UK for hundreds of years, now the number of children who reside in that suburban block might be... You know, I mean, compared to a few hundred years ago, it might be six or seven times less, right? You've got, what, 1. 1.6, 1. 1.2 um, children per family in the UK now? Like, it's, you know, I think you're below replacement rate at the moment, I would say. So I think Australia is, we're about 1.6. Japan, it's just a disaster. I mean, they're at, like, 1.1 1. 1 or something. It's, it's crazy. They're trying to make it better. Um, but as a result of that, so when a child walks out to their front fence, they look left after school. They look right. You know, they've had their snack. They're ready to play. There's no one there. So they just go back inside, right? So unless you create play dates with groups of children on a street that dominate that space and slow the cars down, you know, you, you, if we're fighting this battle that is not going to be won without yeah. strat- strategic approaches because it just because there's just not enough children in a, in a, in a street block, Um, And that's why we're getting play streets, which are sort of strategically placed in suburbs, that all the children sort of create that density to make that work again. Yeah, it's so
0: true. I think it used to happen just organically. And now we have to figure out how do we recreate these social free play opportunities, but at the same time, don't like manufacture them or make them adult led. Cause Mm. I think that's sort of what's happened. Like the, the playground where kids can get together and take risks and explore has either become the digital world. And I fully understand why they go there because it is, free from adult led activity it is private and it is a space where they can free roam so they either go there or they're in um extracurricular type activities you know, i've
1: never thought about that before i would never actually thought about the idea that minecraft creates this vast world for children to roam around it's you. the new playground until you just said that yeah my son was obsessed with minecraft for a while there during covid It sort of waned a little bit since um since able to go outside again, but I, I there is one solution that's working with my kids. Um, you know, I don't want to be all sort of doom and gloom. Um, we so I live in an apartment block which we specifically chose. So we started, we rented there first, um, and then we moved and rented in another unit in the building, and then we moved into another unit which we then ended up buying. But it's really amazing. So it's it's a block of thirty apartments, and. It, it's quite unusual in that it backs onto a green space. Um, so there's no street or any kind of thoroughfare that separates the the apartments from the park. And, you know, on, particularly on a really nice night, you know, you'll have children running around until the sun sets having the time of their lives with their friends and, um, And the parents don't even think twice about doing that.
0: The environmental factors around a playground that can make or break a really great play experience for kids. And I'd love to hear a bit bit about your from your experience of playground design of what do you see in. I suppose more Western cultures in the way that we design playgrounds versus what you learned in some of the places that you were able to perhaps experiment and really sort of tune into the cultures that you were in to, to make those play spaces. Like what did you learn about what can really create a great play experience in these play spaces versus what works less well?
1: Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is I, when I was in my last year of university, I was so lucky to um, win a scholarship um, to live in the Philippines um, for six months. And so this was before play, before I was doing it. It's just, you know, I was still studying. I had no idea what I was going to do really, other than, you know, I was interested in outdoor education. Um, I had a very, um, I remember just, you know, on a fairly sort of, you know, maybe ten times or something in my six months there, just being outside, you know, in the pouring rain, it could pour with rain in the afternoon, and these kids, um, these Filipino kids, just had the most amazing games. You know, this this I remember there was this kind of baseball type game that they would just play. Each kid had a little bit of bamboo, just like a about the length of a chopstick, but a bit more heavy duty, um, and the stick was the bat and the ball. So they one of them would throw their stick and the other kid would hit that, have to hit that stick with their bat. It was incredibly difficult. And then they'd have to hit as far as they could. And then they would use the stick in this sort of rolling motion to measure how far they'd hit the inverted commas ball. It was a crazy game. Like they'd just literally break a stick off a tree. And um, and then they had this other game that they played with um, flip-flops, which was like a, kind of like an ultimate Frisbee type game and a bunch of other stuff. So, you know, I, I'm, I definitely believe that traditional games, um, you know, and we have them in Western culture as well, like Skipping Rope yep. and, um, you know, Foursquare and some of these other games that have just been played forever, um, Climbing Trees and all, all of those things, you know, this children will work out how the world works, and explore how the world works, um, both physically and socially and other in other ways through kind of anything um but as more humans um, are born and take over all of the meaningful space on the planet um, i think that's kind of, kind of almost required a, a need to create a play space so mm-hmm. you know i always i always like looking at these problems from a you know, five thousand year old perspective. Like, why? Why do playgrounds exist? Yeah, why, why do we need them? To play anywhere? Well, because we had a less populated world, right? Yeah. And and um and there were more children. So children mm-hmm. occupied a more intense, they were a more intense force on society previously. Whereas I think as as children, um, as there are less and less cho- children per adult. So you, I like to think about it in that ratio, right? The adult-child ratio in the world has never been like it is now. Never, you know, there was never a time where we had enough healthcare and medicine and well-being. And well, well-being is actually going out the window. But you know, general physical health that you could take the risk of having one child. What a preposterous idea to have one child and expect that they would survive to adulthood. Mm-hmm. That's that's an insane notion that we have now. That is very it's brand new, right? I think I think we've got something like you know th- what is it three or four adults to every child or something because there's a lot of people who don't have any children at all as well, and we've got the elderly and we you know so um you've got all of the young adults who don't have children so there's, there's quite a lot of adults in the world. keep going back to your question though because I'm sort of diverting off everywhere about what did I see in playgrounds children play around the world. In the most remarkably similar ways. So I've been to some of the most remote valleys in Lesotho, for example. You know, I've travelled around Vietnam and you know a lot of Southeast Asia, and certainly in Thailand, I've been to some very remote places um, that that are you know like ugly little towns. Not, they're not you know they're not tourist towns. They're just ugly little towns that no tourists really bother going it's not that no tourists no Westerners, ever be there i can't stand it when people say oh, i was the only white person who'd ever been anywhere i'm like whatever <laughs> um but places that weren't heavily influenced by western culture and you know you see children they make their own slides you know when it rains they'll find a slippery bit of muddy slope and they'll slide right that's what this, so so um if you've got vines hanging off the trees, you'll swing, you know, mm-hmm. and certainly I've seen all sorts of seesaws in my time, like crazy. Um, imagine like a seesaw that swiveled in the middle, but was made out of a piece of bamboo that was like, you know, 10 meters long in these crazy spinning, slow moving, you know, there are all sorts of amazing um, contraptions that people build to play. Um, so I think the first thing I'd say is that children, Play in remarkably similar ways. When you see a newborn baby reaching out for their parent's nose, you know, picking up a, a ball of mud or whatever, you know, the games are different, the rules are different, but the concept is the same. Mm. It's all about understanding how the world works and learning how to socialize and to be empathic and connected with the with your fellow humans, so that you learn the skills to have a good relationship and make life work and make it hopefully vaguely enjoyable along the way. You know, that's that's what I feel. Play is just, you know, uh, I've got a bit of an issue with the sort of play workers in the world who believe that we need to do a PhD on these things. I think it can get really, some of that stuff can get really heavy. But, you know, I think play is simply just a, an evolutionary, it's, it's our mammalian way of, randomly and organically experimenting with the world over thousands of hours to find out the fundamental truths that are there. You know, like if I poke my sibling in the eye, what happens? Oh, if I do it 10 times and the same thing happens, well then maybe I should, I've learned that that's a bad idea. (laughs) You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And um, I suppose with, the difference between some of the 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 playground structures that we see most commonly certainly over here in our western design there are some playgrounds which are kind of more like flagship playgrounds which are Mm. amazing and provide a real mix of uh, opportunities to sort of escape and imagine and move materials around but your bog standard British park in a sort of suburban British town global. global yeah is you know a set of swings maybe a slide maybe a seesaw Um, it's boring like it yeah. really is Um, and I think it's really under stimulating and is really um, limited in terms of the fact that children are probably going to be going there almost every day yet those experiences that they can have in that park will they'll have worn them out <laughs> by you know quite a young age that have sort of done yeah. everything in that yeah. park and perhaps this is a yeah. good point where we talk about the difference between playing on fixed structures like that which have a sort of perhaps a, a, a time span of where they're fun and interesting and they're actually learning and then maybe if we come back to our graph that we were talking about they become they've mastered them they've sort of done them they've learned everything there is so they're sort of almost defunct versus loose parts play which is very different to that would you be able to go into a bit about what loose parts play is how it is different to other types of play um and 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 what what it what it does to children, how it sort of teaches them as they engage in it.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one really simple principle that I've always liked is that the number of parts that are are available to a child, um, number of experiences, so some people call them affordances, um, if you like, the number of things that are available to a child. Um, And then I think the other thing that I always add to it is that the number of connections between those objects um, is extremely important. Um, so, if you have a bunch of branches that have fallen off a tree, and then you have one big tree, you can connect those pieces by leaning the branches against the tree to make a cubby house, right? So, that's sort of a, and that offers an affordance of plain houses and cubbies and things like that. So, it's a really simple example. Um, but the number of pieces, the number of connections between those pieces and, and also the number of maybe change. I'll change the order. The number of pieces. The second thing is the uniqueness of each one of those mm-hmm. pieces, the difference between them um, and there can, and the connection, the number of connections between them sort of multiply on each other. So that's kind of my theory about loose parts. Having said that, my son who's now nine went through a period of playing with a particular type of block where all the blocks were exactly the same and i mean these things are beautiful blocks machined to within an inch of their lives to be exactly the same so you could make big towers you know and and all sorts of interesting shapes he would build you know double story highways all just with these same blocks and run and get cars and run them over each other and and build cubby houses and swimming pools and you know, all sorts of stuff from these one blocks. And so, um, so number of things, number of different things, and number of connections is sort of one way to create an explosion of creativity. And I think that that kind of environment creates a huge amount of creativity and imagination. So, that's really where Noodle Cart's going because um, it creates this ability to. Um, I I like to use the example of camping, you know, when, when you're camping, all you've got is what's in your backpack. Um, And if a storm's coming, and you've got a tarpaulin, and a couple of tent poles, and maybe a couple of bits of string, if that's not enough, then all of a sudden, you've got to go, okay, well, how am I going to do this? Well, there's a few rocks over there, there's a few branches over there, I'm going to hack this together to stay dry, right? It's that Nudicart's really trying to create that type of thinking. Mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. me, when I look at entrepreneurial people, when I look at people who really thrive, it's that kind of thinking, that camping thinking. I've come across a problem. Something's not working. I don't have the tools. Hang on a second. I'm gonna find the, I'm gonna find a workaround. I'm gonna find a hack. I'm gonna talk to someone. I'm gonna download an app put together a survey, I'm going to interview people, I'm going to whatever, I'm going to find it. It's my responsibility. Responsibility I think is really important and loose parts give children responsibility over the construction, over the space. And then that thinking that they have the ownership to, to do that I think is really important.
0: I think you just created a new phrase there. I don't know if you use that, but camping thinking, I am loving that as a new way to talk about creativity. And and suddenly we're also, we're back to the adventure here, because I think it's interesting when we think about loose parts and you say a number of parts, abundance, because I think people have this perception that um, children have too much stuff, which is true for a lot of children, too much stuff, um, can lead to sort of doing nothing um, and kind of being um, almost like that decision making paralysis where they're not using any of their toys or things. But here we're. Well, we're and, actually... and, sorry,
1: and just to answer, I've got it because this is something that bugs me crazy. People in the world refuse to buy single use plastic bags now, but they consistently purchase single use toys all the time and they don't even think twice. If you're not buying toys that are open-ended and do multiple things, you're a bad person. (laughs) Quite (laughs) simply, you are killing the world. The amount of rubbish things that are purchasable from Alibaba and eBay and everywhere else that cost nothing and you're giving them to all your friends for their presents, it's just rubbish. Just buy good quality open-ended activities for your children and they will love you for it and they will be smarter because of it and you will save the planet like it's a it's a huge win you know we've just gone through august because you know um everyone in australia the summer everyone has sex and then everyone has their babies in august which is like the you know august september 8th and 8th and ninth month of the year um so we've just gone through this hectic sort of period of our kids having lots of birthdays and the amount just the sheer load of complete crap that came through our door. You know, lovely people, kind, well-meaning, generous. You know, these are our best friends. But, because they're, it's again, it's the death of a thousand cuts. We're doing these little movements because we feel like we should. You know, we'd be much better off saying, here's the toy that I want. Can you, if you're generous enough to put in some money, I'd like to buy this $400 toy or this, you know, $200 thing, I know it's a big commitment, But actually, it's open-ended. They're going to use it a lot. Um, It's going to form the backdrop of lots of adventures and activities, things that they can share with their friends. You know, that's really, I think, where we should be heading.
0: Yeah, I'd love to start a revolution on changing the behaviour of gifting. It's something that I'm quite passionate about, and um, have made some content in the past as well around <clears> shopping, right. shopping for play, not stuff. What? How? Yes. Do, how do people? Experience
1: is not stuff. That, that's, yeah. That's been something we talked. We had a big campaign, um, a fundraiser that we did years ago, and it was based on the idea of experiences, not stuff. And I really, I really liked that, but it was the biggest flop we've ever done, actually. It was a raffle that had the most amazing experiences and it was really hard and hardly raised any money. Um, Yeah, because I think that it's it's a hard message that needs a lot of work done on it. People really need to understand that just like single-use plastics, I want people to have that same feeling when they pull something off the shelf. They're like, is this a choice that can be pulled apart, reversed, turned upside down, done in different ways or not? And if it's not, you know?
0: So that's what I was going to ask you. What would be your sort of go-to questions when you're evaluating what is a single-use toy versus what is an open-ended toy?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I I think I actually made a a video on a bunch of toys that's on the Playground Ideas YouTube channel once about that. I'm trying to remember what they were. But um, first of all, what I did was I looked at um, one of the things is genericness. I know it sounds super weird that, you know, you don't want genericness, but, you know, things that are covered in just primary colours, things that are um, kind of only fit together in one way and are designed to do one thing um, are no good. And and I've got to be – I love high-quality wooden European toys, but one of my principles for designing things is that there is no hidden agenda. I do not, through the use of this toy, expect you to learn a STEM skill or a counting skill or a number skill because kids can see through that in one second. They are not interested in play. You know, the the definition of play is is self-directed and freely chosen. And when you hand a toy to a child that is adult directed and does not involve their free choice in its use, but their didactic use, you know, they can see through that, they can smell it a second away, right? And so there's a really fine line. Like, you know, there's um another great toy that my kids played with were those um Cuisinaire blocks.
0: I don't know. Those Queenair
1: blocks. So they're like they're like unit blocks. So there's like one is really small, which is just a single, it's like a centimeter by a centimeter square. And then there's a two and a three and a four and a five and a six up okay. to ten. So they make a little rod. Um, and they come in a little kit and there's hundreds of them. So lots of repeating parts of all different lengths. You can make really cool towers. We had a set that had the blocks had different colors, but they weren't sort of just straight up primary colors. Um, and interestingly, it came with these cards with pictures of birds, you know, trains, cars, and other things. And you could take the different size blocks and lay them out and make a two-dimensional object. My kids never touched those cards, but... They build all sorts of crazy things with those blocks. Um, another thing that you know that's so beautiful are those you know those, those curved rainbows that everyone's mm. got. They, they, they're like the most instagrammable They are toy very Instagramable. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and they can stack in some interesting ways. But Mikey's never played with them. They're just well, we had one, and they just I don't know. They just. I don't know. It was sort of because it goes together in that very satisfying set. You just want to put it together in that set. Yeah, that's true. And then take it apart and then put it back again. It's so satisfying. So it doesn't. It doesn't. Maybe it's because it doesn't feel quite right when you put it together mm. in the wrong way because it's so obvious the format mm. that it's supposed to go in or something. I don't, yeah, I don't know. that's I mean, so I'm
0: interesting. Not, I, th- I think a lot of people, what do you think? A lot of people will connect with that, and I think that is one of those toys where you feel like it's almost like the the sort of the toy to have if you want to be a bit Montessori or a bit sort of open-ended and yeah. I think a lot of people buy those and their kids don't know what to do with them and I was going to ask you about that because um, it is a skill to play with, it shouldn't be, but I think it is a skill to play with loose toys versus um, what you're talking about as a as you call it a single use toy and I think what can happen is if your kid isn't used to playing in that way which it it, now you really cannot play like that like you can because kids here go to school when they're like four um they're in a lot of like um sort of structured classes um as you were talking about the ratio to adults kids spend a lot more time with adults now and in adult company so yep. it's actually possible for kids not to have a lot of experience playing like that and i know that when parents can try and introduce when they learn more about open ended play and loose parts and think ah not really doing any of that and they try and bring it in the kid can sometimes not know not know what to do or perhaps be underconfident in that way is there yeah. in your experience with um putting noodle car into environments and into schools have you ever seen that first of all or do kids just boom know what to do Absolutely. perhaps because they're with other kids yeah. and how would you uh, sort of speak to a parent in that situation whose kid seems to be struggling with that sort of play are there ways of sparking um these sorts of play patterns or what sort of helps it along
1: oh yeah let's break that's a so many interesting things to talk about in that so first of all yes so i did a i did a catholic primary school incursion last week and there are i would say out of let me so there would be a hundred people in the room there's about 80 children in the room so Less than 1% I found of children who couldn't just instantly get involved, right? We just, just the vast majority. I mean, like, you know, 98% at least are just itching to get going. And this is in a noodle cart space. Remember where none of the, we, we talk of one of our principles is the de-meaningfulization of the parts. So that's like literally um, when they see a part, it doesn't look like anything. Right, it doesn't. Um, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't relate to anything that they know. None of the pieces that we have look like any other toy or any other object that they've seen before. Some of them, they'll say, "I'll say, what does that piece look like?" And they'll say, "Oh, it's a key or a looking glass or a unicorn horn or whatever." So you know, they can associate it with things. But in a, in the same way, um, I always like using this example of you know the, the sort of Freudian psychologists use those those ink blot tests. You know. An inkblot doesn't have any meaning in it. But a human can look at that because we're pattern makers, we're tessellators, we are, you know, the, the, the I think it's one of the most defining features of the human species is our ability to see pattern and see meaning and define opportunity in the randomness of the jungle or whatever environment we found that. ourselves yeah. born in, right? But it's true, right? That's that's what makes humans humans. We are we play so one fact is that we play longer, much longer than even an a orangutan. I think the orangutans' brains, um, you know, their playful state goes for something like 11 years, which is incredibly long, and they're amazingly intelligent, insightful animals. Um, dogs play a huge amount in their youth, you know, um, working out how hard to bite when you're wrestling. Is that too hard? When do we stop? Oh, they yelped. Okay, I better stop now. I better do some play bows and get back into it orangutans do lots of incredible work with their kinship groups and other things um even birds you know have playful states you know there's that famous video of that english raven snowboarding down a down a <laughs> snow-clad roof which is just amazing to think that they've learned that skill but humans you know I mean, we play fairly intensely until we're sort of in our mid-20s right it's a huge period i mean it's more than it's like a quarter of or more of our lives that we're still, our brains are still developing. It's a huge investment, but, it, you know, look at the results of, you know, as much as you may hate human development and fossil fuel yeah. use and all the awful things, Coca-Cola or whatever you want that we've, um, you know, sugary drinks and all of that other stuff, and you know, fatty foods, whatever. I've, I have come to a point where as much as I abhor a lot of that stuff, I have fallen in love with human, you know, intuition and Mm. innovation. I mean, it's just humans are incredible. The medicines, the technologies, the, you know, gosh, we've sent a person, you know, we've sent little pieces of metal out to the other planets. It's just, we are, (laughs) you've got to
0: love. Yeah. It's really refreshing to hear that actually because it feels like such such a heavy time at the moment and more and more things keep happening where it feels like it's getting worse and worse and worse and I think Mm. that actually I think is such an important perspective to bring to this current time because now we're at a point where we have to use these skills we have to use this innovative ability to and and a lot of people don't
1: factor in that yes climate change is a big deal and yes these other things are happening and yes they scare me and i have moments sometimes of panic where i'm like i'm just raised i've got two children heading into this planet and that there are times of concern but i guess there is another hopeful part of me that we are not linear right we do not progress in linear ways you know i i i if I ever said I had to, that I had a church that I belonged to, it would be one part of it would be belong to a guy called Ronald Wright, who wrote a book called, um, a short history of progress. He did the 2004 Massey lectures in Canada, which is on YouTube. And it's the most incredible five talks and talks about, um, you know, these frothy yeasty periods, um, of human history where, um, you know, life spilled over the top of the pole the bowl you know where we no longer um, kept fire after a lightning storm but we um, were able to light the fire you know these periods where everything fundamentally changed and we're in one of those times yeah. right now um, and I guess my, I I have a I hold my breath but I have this sort of belief that as you know, you watch things like the crisis of COVID happen and how we innovated our way out of that in the most, you know, the time it took to get a vaccine. You remember in those early days where people were like, it takes 10 years to make a vaccine. Yeah. And all of a sudden, 12 months later, people are getting this in there. And it's just like, how did we do that? Because, you know, and this is this, you know, one of the, I'm jumping all over the place, sorry. But, the, you know, one of the greatest things about ADHD is a thing called hyperfocus. When a person with ADHD has an idea in their mind, they can't let it go. They're like a dog at a bone until they solve that problem, right? And that's why, you know, um, again, I know there are severe cases, but humans, the, the organic experiment of humanity, there are these sort of sweet spot people who have this ability to hyper focus on a task and also be have the skills enough to engage other people and tell the story to make things happen. And he, unbelievable right so I do I guess I hold my breath but have some hope I guess. And, and
0: I'm things. sure you are as passionate as I am about the role of play within that hope and within that change mm-hmm. and sort pulling together lots of different threads here about what we've been talking about about <laughs> yeah, sort of open-ended play and about um, that sort of neurodiversity as well and drawing these kind of ideas and the ability to experiment from people and and play is the space where all of that can happen and I think it's exciting to see an innovation like Noodle Cart going into particularly an education space because we here in in the UK have a curriculum that is not particularly creative and one of the concerns yeah. that
1: It's global. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's one of the concerns I have is a creativity gap. um, So that when these kids arrive at the point of adulthood, where these problems are going to be their problems, and they are going to have to innovate out of them, we need to make sure that they have as much uh, play history (laughs) that they can gather um, before they arrive there, and that they are inspired and understand the importance to carry on doing that um, through you know you spoke there about you know our brains are still developing you know up until the point of we're 25 but for a lot of kids their play is dropping off whilst they're still in childhood Um, and we have to kind of find ways we would like it to happen organically but the world needs innovations like you were talking about with playgrounds it needs these kind of these these ways of if this isn't happening organically anymore, how do we hold a space for that and find different ways to, to help it along? Um, as you know, and the car is a great example of that. Like this is a reality. Um, it's it's people aren't going out in the streets and playing as much anymore because the cars are there. While there's a genuine reason for that. There's a genuine reason for that safety. There's lots of things that parents are concerned about that are perhaps less less rational. But I think and, the point and you is you have
1: to address that you have to, to address, address it. those issues yeah. you can't just go you know what we used to do this when we were kids so you've got to do that more
0: exactly if the fact of the
1: matter is we are not living in the same exactly. world and you have yeah. to address those issues yeah. yeah but the other thing we've got to address is the is why play is so fundamentally important and you touched on creativity right and I, I, playing creativity are synonymous they're in Separable, right? A.K.A.
0: camping I mean, thinking, which is my new <coughs> favourite phrase. Yeah, exactly,
1: yeah. <laughs> so I've been working with this guy, um, Dr. Tim Patston, who runs an organisation called Creative Actions and is also um, from the University of South Australia. Um, and so a couple of things. The first one is for parents, when they're restricting their child's play, you know, I was watching this father out in the park the other day. We've had a lot of rain in the last couple of weeks. His father was telling their child, do go in that puddle. And I was like, I was looking at this kid. I'm like, they're wearing big gumboots, galoshes, or whatever you call them over there. And they're like, don't you go in that puddle, you know? And I was just like, Why? You got to go in the puddle. Like it's just you got to go in the puddle. And and then he said, you know, like I know they've got gumboots. And I said, oh, you know, I I had to comment. I was just like, I was just like, good luck with trying to stop it or something like that. You know, I just sort of said it in a light way. I wasn't being critical. And you know, and then. He felt defensive and said, "Oh, you know, but she's just as like to sit down in it." And I I, I, I didn't say anything, but I had this automatic thing of like, "Yeah, but she won't do it too often on a cold, wintry winter day like this. Like, you got to see what happens, right? If you stick your bum in the freezing cold water, you know." Um, so, but parents need to understand in the same way that we need to address and and and. Um, address people's fears about cars and then come up with a solution like play streets, which is a brilliant idea. Um, I don't think it's enough, but I think it's part of the solution is getting those kids out on the street and parents meeting each other and creating those connections. So kids can go to each other's houses and play in each other's front yards, whatever. Um, We need to address why it's important to play so that when parents are stopping it, they go, what am I doing? Like, why do I keep doing this? Right? So, if you put the context of play into this ancient brain need to learn how the world works in a very organic way and that every minute that they're doing that, they're exploring and experimenting with life in what I like to call like the most on, you know, this on time manufacturing that Toyota has that, you know, the pieces arrive in the factory just as you need them. And there's these systems for getting everything humming. So just as the brain has the neuron connections ready to understand, I don't know, levers or gravity or, you know, how the oceans work or whatever. They start toying and experimenting with this idea. And that's why play changes over time. So ages ago, you asked me a question, which I, we got off topic and didn't answer about what makes a great playground. It's really hard because you're dealing with children of lots of different ages. Right. And, Obviously, we see these big, broad brushstroke types of play. So we see object play and, you know, parent-child play in those early years of just dropping, you know, the, you know, the classic thing of a kid sitting in a high chair and just yeah. picking up their bit of spaghetti and dropping it off the chair, <laughs> picking up their spoon. Oh, the same thing happens. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again. And, you know, and the parents are going crazy. But the kid's like, okay, autumn. so what are they learning in that moment? They're learning gravity works. It's universal. It works every time. They also learn that my parent has only so much patience and I can only do certain activities so many times before I get a response. But I also learned that if I want my parents' attention and I drop a dirty fork on the carpet for the 10th time, that I will get their attention, you know, and, and my parent will also learn that they haven't been giving me enough attention or whatever. You know, there's these, it's very messy, right? Mm -hmm. But it's, but you can, you can interpret it as, you know, um, and, you know, like kids wrestling and children, you know, siblings fighting and stuff like that, and, you know, as they work out. I mean, God, I, like I think about my kids, just the amount of time they spent fighting. I was like, would you please work out empathy and please work out cooperation and work out that it's better to do collaboration than it is to poke each other in the, you know, kick each other in the, the neck 10 times. You know, it's like it takes a lot. It's so often slow and you know, again Very, but- yeah. But if you, if there are parents listening and they ask themselves deeply the question of, have you been able to teach them by just talking to them about it? The answer is probably no. Yeah. Like you can coach when something goes wrong. You can talk about what other strategy they've got. You just, you just can't. Your child's brain is not open to that. They are open to play.
0: Hands on learning, literally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. It's just the way. It's just the way we're built to work. And it makes sense. If you think about the last 5,000 years of our development, the idea of sitting down with a pen and paper, pencils and paper are very, very new technology. You know, know, they're only a few generations away, a few human lifetimes away from being very new, right? Like you put a few 80-year-olds end-to-end and the printing press is not very many of them away, right? Humans live long lives and we evolve very slowly. We're not like ants or you know fruit flies. So I- evolution is exceptionally slow. Mm. And so you, you don't think you're too much of a, you know, a crash hot parent by using too much technology, because at the end of the day, we don't that's an experiment we have no idea about, right? Not a single clue. I, I went to university, I wrote my first essay in university on a computer. It's like it's ridiculously new. We have no idea where yeah. we're headed with all this tech stuff, you know. Yet again, I don't even know what the question was you asked me. We're, we're all over the place. We're playing. That's, that's, that's a, we're playing. Creativity. No, no. I, you asked me about creativity and I wanted to address that. So working with top, Dr. Tim Patston, um, uh, I wanted to connect that to a point that you made a while ago about um, parents and children not being able to engage in loose parts play. Yeah. So there is absolutely a mindset with Loose Parts Play that you need to be open to, mm. and I think most children are open to it, but maybe not so many adults.
0: Mm.
1: And there's this – so the, the thing that I came up with after speaking at length with Tim Patson was this thing called um, putting on your creativity cape, K-A-P-E, that's an acronym that stands for the K stands for knowledge and experiences. The A stands for attitudes. The P stands for process and the E stands for environment. Mm-hmm. And they are the four things that you absolutely need to put on your, to, to make creativity happen in your life. Um, me and Tim had a lot of arguments about this. You know, this is through Tim's research and literature reviews that go back to the seventies. Um, You can't, come creatively to solve a problem without your previous cache of knowledge and experiences. So next time you stop your child from doing something they haven't done before, you need to think twice. Children must have an an enormous cache of memories and experiences and different, you know, like every weekend, go do something new when you can. If you've got that moment, go for a bushwalk. Go and, I don't know, go indoor skydiving. Go, you know, I don't know, go to the museum and look at insects. Try and just be a sponge with the world with your children because that gives them a huge cache of connections. You know, when I, when I started designing the noodle cart, I had, um, you know, I spent a bit of time in Japan after I built those playgrounds in Thailand, and I just loved the woodwork. They have all this woodwork which, which uses no nails, and connect wood together in these beautiful connections, which you see on their in their handrails in the temples, and you know, in all sorts of stuff. You can see that in the pegs that connect the pieces in the noodle cart. There's a fundamental bit of Japanese carpentry, which is in that design. I never knew when I was looking at that handrail the connection, but you need that knowledge of those knowledge and experience. Um, and then going back to your point about at least adults and some children engaging in loose parts play, you need the right attitudes. And two of the key ones that have really stuck from Tim's research are openness and curiosity. Mm. Those two things, if you can enter a space with openness and curiosity, you will solve great, you will solve big, hard problems. And the interesting thing is I've, you know, entered in more of this entrepreneurial sort of startup world with Noodle Cart is that the people who I interact with who've started businesses and who've, or organizations, nonprofits, whatever, who do interesting things, when you talk to them, they're just sponges. They are so open to feed, you know, if you give someone, a really entrepreneurial person, feedback about their company, they almost never take it as an insult, right? As much as they might hate it because they're so driven to you know make something amazing they, they, they're they so open to it because they're so, they've got this internal drive to just go what's the next thing what can i learn how can i add this to the thing that i you know that i'm doing um so just being open to experiencing new things and then being curious to try and and uh, you know try those new things so when you go to a new country go i'm going to stick that in my mouth i'm going to to eat that weird food. I've never tried it before, but I'm going to give it a go, right? And play in loose parts is the same, being yeah. open to how those things connect. And, yeah. Um, and then there's a creative process, which um, we've actually got a free downloadable creativity manual that people can get, which you might want to put a link to, to which is Dr. Tim Patson's and my work. But the process is really simple. But one really great little snippet of that is when you go to solve a problem, to be absolutely conscious in your mind that the first thing that you come up with is not the solution. Like like collect 10, 15 or 20 ideas and then refine those ideas and improve them and then make a decision. And that doesn't have to be a long, you know, tedious process. And obviously simple problems, you know, you don't need to do that. But when you've got a really hard problem, like, you know, I'm going through, we've got a, our family needs to buy a new car. We've grown out of our car. That's kind of a grudge thing. Like there's so many different cars and different options and, you know, d- different things. Like do we get a small car with a tow ball and get a trailer or do we get a big car? Or blah, 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 you, know? you know, being just completely um, open to, well, there's going to be lots of different solutions to this problem and there's lots of different factors. And I'm going to tr- go through a process of that before I make a decision is one little principle. And then obviously the environment, you know, the creative environment, is not a white room with a desk and a chair, and particularly with a hierarchy and someone telling you what to do. Um, I think flat structures um, are high, much more conducive where you don't, where you can do what Tim coined as um, intellectually, in, intellectual risk-taking. You can intellectually take risks. You can say things. You can suggest ideas without yeah. persecution. You know? Anyway, so that's that's the creativity cake, which I think encapsulates a whole bunch of what we've been talking about today in terms of how you design playgrounds and how you think about solving problems and how parents engage with play with their kids and, you know, how we solve the problem of play streets and, you know, kids getting outside. And all that stuff is, is encapsulated in that creativity process.
0: I love that. And what actually jumps to mind is how I would love that to be the future of how people use the internet because it feels like it's a space where no one is wearing that cape. <laughs> um, like that, <laughs> yeah, like that people true. are going to that space almost like with a with a closed mind to um to find things that either reflect exactly what they believe in or the opposite um and i would love for the evolution of how we share ideas and debate and innovate i'd love that to be a more collective experience in the future but as you said just just now it's such a new technology we're all such amateurs even though you know we're using it every day we honestly haven't got a clue what we're doing with it we're still you know in hundreds and hundreds Absolutely. of years we'll look back and we'll be like wow that, they were they were strange yeah. times um but marcus thank to, to, you um yeah, so sorry, much just, for... I, oh, sorry sorry, you go you go. i, just I was one, just gonna
1: can say, can I say co- one point about yeah. that social media thing sorry because <laughs> it i think again to put a hopeful spin on that you know social media is run by an algorithm and facebook and you know all the other big social media companies have got a lot of responsibility to fix that algorithm. You know, if you aimlessly scroll, you know, if you've seen The Social Dilemma and if you haven't, I think everyone should watch that film. You know, I've noticed as I aimlessly scroll, I've even done an experiment where I just scroll forever and just see what comes up. You know, it it crystallises and refines certain things that it thinks about me. So, for instance, a classic example is someone like, I've watched the Jordan Peterson video about play and evolution and um, children and, and things like that. The trouble is Jordan Peterson has some other very controversial thoughts about gender and politics and other things. Um, and then the algorithm connects me watching that video with the wrong parts of Jordan Peterson and starts taking me down this line, which is outrage, you know, to more people who are trying to get me to comment and, and, and involve myself and when I don't do that, it gets more and more outrageous because it's wanting that response. It's wanting to engage me. And I feel like, um, unfortunately, if you're not a conscious scroller, um, it, it's, it's a very, very dangerous road. And I don't blame the people. You know, it's people, you know, we know that drugs are, can take us down all sorts of roads that um, people don't want to go down. And um, some people have more addictive personalities than others social media is i think this is one of the strongest drugs we've ever invented and it's it's insidious yeah. and you're absolutely right we're going to look back on this period and go wow people lost decades
0: yeah for those so. little
1: bricks in their hand it's incredible yeah. anyway that's sorry it's...
0: um well i will um yeah close there but thank you so much for for joining me today this has been a conversation that's gone in many directions um and has <laughs> yeah, been um that. yeah it's been absolutely fascinating and yeah best of luck with with Next Steps for Noodle Cart, Um we will drop all of the details in the show notes. And yeah, thank you for joining me today. It's been great.
1: Pleasure. It's been really great to chat, Emma. Keep doing what you're doing. It's great.